Haven FC Church. If you're joining us online, we welcome you as well. We're going to be in Acts 20 today. Get your Bibles, Bible apps warm. We're wrapping up our series uh, today called A World Less Traveled. And that world that we're talking about is kind of the, the place that God is calling us to, the place that requires courage, virtue, godliness, a place that people often are too afraid of to actually go and to chase and to to go ahead and be obedient to the calling that God has for us. And um, today we're at a little town called Miletus. It looks like Miletus, if you're spelling it out or look, seeing it on the screen. Um, it's, a, it's a place that on its own is fairly insignificant, but what happens there teaches us a powerful lesson about friendship. So we're talking about partnership in the gospel and about friendship and how Jesus deepens our relationships and makes them more abundant than we really could have otherwise. So um, let me start with that and add this to it. You notice that our interactions with one another are becoming increasingly uh, quick, increasingly maybe even distant. We often define now our, the amount of friends we have by things like, how many friends do you have on Facebook? I don't know, I've got like, I'm 3,600 or something like that. I might know 1,000 of them if I'm lucky. I think the, the, the psychiatrists or the, the people that do social stuff say you can only really know about 100 people uh, in the world. Well, okay, so we got that. Well, then how about followers? That's kind of a creepy thing when you think about it. How many followers do you have? I hope I don't have any followers. I hope Jesus has a bunch, though. Um, and those are the things you get on Twitter or on Instagram or those kind of places. And we, we talk about people who are, quote, unquote, influencers or whatever, even though their lives really won't have a lot of influence, at least for very long. And we identify influence by follower count and friend count and things like that. Most influential person that ever lived was Jesus. Uh, even to this day, billions still claim him and devote their lives to him. And so I want to know what he did that made such a powerful impact that this man, a humble carpenter from Nazareth, could have such an impact on the people that were around him that even to this day, people still orient their entire lives around him. The Apostle Paul, who once persecuted the church, now is the great missionary uh, going around preaching the gospel wherever he can. In Time Magazine, they did an article about handwriting. And they talked about how nobody teaches handwriting anymore. I mean, think about this. When was the last time you actually got, well, how about the last time you wrote a handwritten note to somebody? If you're under the age of 20, have you ever written a handwritten note to anybody? Or have you only done it by text or by, you know, some other means, uh, a Snapchat or something like that? Um, in the old days, in air quotes, and I'm old enough to remember these days when people would write handwritten notes, Often they would do it in cursive. And what time was pointing out is that they don't teach cursive anymore in many schools. So cursive was different. When I remember learning it, it felt like I was learning Egyptian hieroglyph or, or something really complicated. It really wasn't, but it was elegant. You know, you kind of big swoopy letters. And some of us may, uh, you know, sign our names in very fanciful ways using cursive and things like that. But what it did was it made you take your time. And if somebody sent you a note and it happened to be in cursive, you know, you would often go, wow, what beautiful penmanship he or she has. And now we don't know what kind of penmanship most people have. And those notes, their point was, are going away. And so now instead of, for instance, writing a handwritten note that says, hey, I just want you to know how much I appreciate you. I, I want you to know that da, 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 da. what we'll do is like 
you know, give a thumbs up emoji or something like that, right? It, there's a distance, a proximity gap that's being created by the way that we communicate. Now, it's not always about length. Now, my dad and I, I consider my dad to be my best friend, and when he and I talk on the phone, um, it, it, we, we can get it all done in about a minute 30. We really can't. I call him, it goes something like this. Hello. Hey, Dad. It's your son. Hey. How you doing today? Oh, you know. Yep. Is mom around? Oh, yeah, she's around here somewhere. All right. Well, will you guys do anything big today? Oh, you know. Yep. Well, you guys got any big plans? Oh, you know, usual. Just doing our thing. Yeah, it's good. Hey, you, uh, what you, uh, you guys feeling okay? You guys good and healthy? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, when are we going to see you next? Oh, you know, soon, I think. Okay. I mean, if the FBI were trying to listen in on our phone calls, <laughs> they would have no idea what we were talking about. And a minute 30 later, it's over. All right. But we still consider ourselves extremely close. And not just because we're father and son. A lot of people are fathers and sons, right? But they're not necessarily close. And it's not even just a a good father-son bond, although we have one. Underneath it is the fact that both of us have given our lives to ministry in one way, shape, or form. That there's something that transcends the relationship of just father and son that gives father and son a whole new, takes it to a whole new level. And that is believing that when the gospel is preached, something amazing happens. That serving others, as Paul will say to the elders at Ephesus today, that as Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. That there's an ethos that drives and undergirds the relationship between us that makes it deeper. And what we're going to see today is that that is something that is supposed to be strong and vibrant and common inside the church. That among the blessings that God gives to us, it's not just salvation or abundant life or all those things. He gives us friends, but not friends with the lowercase f like you get. Kind of friends you can't get just anywhere, right? The kind of friends you don't make and you don't build relationships with, drinking margaritas and Palm Springs together, or, you know, people thinking that, hey, the bond that really ties us together is football. And so, you know, you get, you get two Charger fans together, you know, they have two left. I think they're, you get two of them together and they start doing it. You get a few beers in them, they'll turn on each other. Right? Football didn't do it. You can't build relationships on that. Camaraderie, little rah-rah, sure. But not the kind that makes you weep when you know you're not going to see them again. I've been to hundreds of games. I've never once cried because as I was leaving the park, I wasn't going to see the guy from the row behind me as I left the park. However, almost without fail, I feel uh, compassion, emotion, whenever anybody moves away. That's part of our church. And it's not because moving away is wrong or anything like that. It's just there's a sense of we went through something together. We were bonded by something deeper and we'll remain bonded, but I will miss you. I'll miss serving with you. I'll miss um, seeing your kids running around. I'll miss those kinds of things, right? That that bond 
is something you see in living color in Acts chapter 20. Here's how this goes down. Paul knows that he's going to be heading off uh, to a place of probably imprisonment, maybe even death. And so he calls the elders of Ephesus to him. He's in Miletus, but he asked the elders to come to him. It's not a small journey. It's not the kind you ride your bike there or something like that. It's a little further than that. They had to take trouble to get there. But they get there and listen to how this goes down. And we're going to read like, if you picture this, we're going to read about 75% of it now. And then we'll get to the, the, the last part later. Here's how it starts. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and he called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears. You can underline tears in your Bible. And with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold... I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming The kingdom will see my face again. So these are parting words. And the part I want us to focus on is that part where he says, I don't view my life as having anything of value or precious to myself, except that I can finish the course and the ministry that I received from the Lord. For Paul, the very purpose of his life is ministry. His whole life is about serving Jesus, and that's the way it's supposed to be for everybody who calls themselves a Christian. We have this thing of dividing Christians out like we're on a spectrum. And you have like Christians who are casually Christian, and then you've got people who are really into it, kind of like Star Wars or something. I've seen the movies uh, once each. Some of you, I mean, that I can see sitting in this room, have. I won't call them dolls, like toys, whatever you call those things, action figures, action figures. Uh, you got posters, you've got, uh, you will dress up. We had a Star Wars festival here at the Grand about three weeks ago. We had full-blown stormtroopers on the sidewalk, people dressed up in all sorts of things. They are into it. And I think people see Christianity that way. You got the people who've kind of like, yeah, you know, I, I, I became a Christian, you know, I was eight, ten years old, you know, I, I was baptized, whatever. And, uh, yeah, you know, I wish them well. I think that's great. I I enjoyed going to church when I was a kid, you know. And then over here, you've got the super apostle people, the the, the people who are way too into it. We almost think them weird because the way that they go about their faith is so uncommon. We view them almost as an extremist. In the world the New Testament is holding up for us, there's one kind of Christian. You follow Jesus or you don't follow Jesus. And following is a verb. It's not something that exists on a spectrum or anything like that. Well, I kind of follow him. I follow him a few feet. I follow him a few yards or whatever. When you you become a Christian, you say, I'm dying to myself. I'm being raised to new life. And that life is going to be lived out every day following the Lord Jesus Christ. So what Paul is saying is, my life 
as, it, as I understand it, doesn't really matter for much except that I can finish the race that God put out in front of me. And so what he's doing is he's calling these guys to him in part to say goodbye, but also because you get the sense he needs strength. He's feeling weak. He says, I'm going off to imprisonment and persecution. And you guys know how I like to roll. I go from door to door preaching the gospel. I preach out in the public. I preach here. I preach there. And I didn't hold anything back from you. And so now I'm going to Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit has led me there. So I'm off. And this could get ugly. And so come pray with me. But serving Christ, that's his purpose. That's his aim. And so this will be ours. You know, the question of to what degree is not a biblical question. It's you're either for me or you're against me. You gather to me or you scatter abroad. That's what he says. We like to pull things down to certain levels or focus over in certain directions. The philanthropist John Shedd said a ship in harbor is safe, but that's not what ships are built for. And they're not. Christians are not built to stay in the harbor, sit in Bible studies for the rest of their lives without doing anything or practicing anything. Now, you can certainly get into danger trying to go out and just do stuff kind of in a, uh, a restless way without really understanding who you're serving or what you're serving or what you're doing. But there's another danger, which is that all we do is sit and we learn and we consume, but we don't do. We don't follow. We admire. We don't follow. But we, we check out. We look at the picture. We study Jesus like a subject rather than following him like a disciple. And so what Paul is doing here is, is holding that up to us and saying, listen, guys, I got, I'm, I'm struggling here. I need you guys to, to come here with me and, and pray with me because I'm mean, going to need to say my goodbyes because the Holy Spirit's taking me here, and I need you guys to come, come pray with me. But he's not in it casually. If you're wondering what your purpose in life is, there it is. When you become, if you're a Christian, it's to follow Jesus. What does that mean? To be like him. Every day, head to toe, in and out, heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's the purpose of your life. That's what you say you want when you become a Christian. Not my will, but yours be done. So, let's take a follower test, shall we? In John Steinbeck's classic work, Cannery Row, he offers us a glimpse of a certain kind of person. There's a conversation between Doc and Hazel are the two characters. And there's another one named Henry. Henry's over there working on his boat all the time. Doc and Hazel are sitting there in, on, you know, on Cannery Row in Monterey, and they're uh, shelling oysters, talking to each other about Henry, the guy working on his boat. So here's what Hazel says. He says, you know, that boat, He's been building that boat for seven years that I know of. The blocks rotted out and he made concrete blocks. Every time he gets it nearly finished, he changes and starts over again. I think he's nuts. Seven years on a boat. Doc was sitting on the ground pulling off his rubber boots. You don't understand, he said. Henry loves boats, but he's afraid of the ocean. Afraid of boats, or uh, loves boats, but he's afraid of the ocean. Well, what's he want a boat for then, Hazel demanded. He likes boats, but suppose he finishes the boat. Once it's finished, people will say, why don't you put it in the water? 
Then if he puts it in the water, he'll have to go out in it, and he hates the water. So you see, he never finishes the boat, so he doesn't ever have to launch it. There are people who are fond of Christianity's highest ideas, the noble ends that we think, the stories we hear that are full of good news and things like that. But at its core, Christianity has a movement to it. It's a verb at its core. We learn of Jesus. We get to know Jesus. We spend time with Jesus and we follow him. Where he goes, we go. That's what you see in the life and the ministry of Paul. There is no version of Christianity in which a person should sit and tinker with their faith week after week after week, day after day after day, and just tinker with it, tinker with it, tinker with it, but keep the boat in the harbor. To love boats, hate the ocean. It's one of voyage and adventure. Remember when, at the beginning of the series, when we talked about the Antioch church and how the Christians were all huddled in Jerusalem, and even though they'd been called to be witnesses throughout the, the earth, they wouldn't go. And so after the stoning of Stephen, there's a persecution that comes up and scatters them everywhere because they wouldn't go. They didn't want the ocean at that point. They were scared of the ocean. They were still there tinkering around on the boats. So God, here we go, boom, psh, now everybody's out in the ocean and off they go. There is a missional aim to the gospel. It's never been an academic subject to be studied. It's a life. It's a salvational um, existence that only people who know the Christ and have given themselves to him can chase that an experience. When you go and you talk to a person about the gospel, you're not just saying to them, let me explain to you 10 reasons why the gospel is true. Those reasons exist. They may be important in persuasion. But at the end, what you need to be helping them get to is the idea that your life is going, if you give your life to Jesus, everything about who you are and what you do on a daily basis is going to change. It should. And if it doesn't, then the question is, did you come to Jesus or did you come to some sort of noble hobby? Or did you come for some other reason? Because if you come to Jesus, that's going to take you into places like Paul says. He goes, look, the Holy Spirit is compelling me to go to Jerusalem. And I know how things roll in Jerusalem. And so I'm likely to end up in jail or worse. But I can't do anything else. So I need you guys to come here so I can say goodbye and so we can pray together. Now, moving forward from there, serving Christ together becomes one of the greatest blessings that we have. Serving Christ teaches people Christ. We just finished a food drive here, and we'll tell you some of the details during announcement time, but we just served, we asked you for 600 side dishes for Thanksgiving meals for these needy people. You brought 900. Bravo. Praise God for that. Yeah, amen. Amen. Praise God for that. Now listen, listen. We had somebody, a great person, I love the heart behind that. They came to us right away when we announced the food drive and said, hey, I want to pay for all the food. Great. That's awesome. What a heart. I mean, and we, we turned it down. Here's why. The part that actually changes the heart of the church is going to the store, getting the food, bringing it here, and then standing across from the people in need and blessing them face to face. That's the part that's there because it's serving Christ that teaches people Christ. Here's what he says in Acts 20, 35. Paul goes, 
in all things, I have shown you that. I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, who himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. I've shown you. When you're raising kids, a lot of Christianity is more caught than taught. You need to teach, but a lot of it's just caught. Because they watch mom and dad live it out. That's, that's where they learn. Uh, as a pastor, you kind of feel like one of the big things you always have to kind of negotiate on an ongoing basis is, okay, what kind of boundaries are we going to draw for our family? And I think Em and I early had a lot of boundaries, and now we've kind of realized that, no, if you're going to raise kids in the Lord, you kind of need to let them near you, and they, they need to take the ride with you as you go. And I remember the night of the city council meeting where the vote was going to be taken on this particular building. And, you know, the city council meetings are not known for their kindness. Um, they are not known uh, as places where everybody just shows up and blesses each other and uh, sings old anxiety and goes home. Uh, they're they're um, often full of rancor. There had been an election right before that that had voted the whole um, the majority of the council out. And so this was their last night. People had shown up the week before to scream at the outgoing council. So the question is, do I want my kids there? They wanted to be there. Do I want them there? And so not that I could have, because all that would have happened is if we left them at home, they would have turned on the TV and watched it on TV anyway. <laughs> but we thought to ourselves, no, we're going to let them go. And we tried to prep them and say, hey, guys, listen, uh, Anna particularly, Anna was the one that we, we, we let roll with us, and she was sitting there right in the second row. She's at Pepperdine now, 18 years old. So I guess she was like 16, 15 then. And, uh, and she said, hey, you know, listen, uh, people may say some really uh, nasty things tonight. You need to be ready for that. And if it doesn't go our way, then uh, we're going to follow Jesus wherever he takes us next, you know. And so she came in. And, of course, the vote was, was unanimous, you know, and went our way. And everything, and, and she was there praying with the church out in the rain before and praying in the rain afterwards and rejoicing and everything like that. And I do, I do think back on that, and I go, man, I'm glad we let her come. Because she's going to learn more. Now, I could have sat there, and I could have pre I mean, look, I can preach to my kids like nobody's business. They'll tell you that. I can sit there and give sermon after sermon after sermon around the house, and you know what? It wouldn't have been half as powerful as her experiencing it with a, let us show you, let mom and I show you how you do this. That it's okay to put yourself in a little bit of harm's way if you feel like you're following where God is taking you. He says, listen, I've shown you, in all things I've shown you, that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Serving Christ then, too, not just, say, for a kid's sake or the educational piece, but the deepening of friendships, okay? Serving Christ together deepens our love for one another, unmistakably so. The amount of affection that exists between Paul and the Ephesian elders is unmistakable. Listen to this, Acts 20, verses 36 to 38. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and he prayed with them all, and there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. 
and they accompanied him to the ship. So we got more tears now. So what's the deal with all the crying? Option one, they're just very emotional guys. They're sissies of the sort. They cry at the drop of a hat, that kind of thing. Option two, it's allergy season. It's really just eye-watering that's going on. Option three, I think this is most likely, the relationship between the Ephesian elders and Paul had been forged by serving Christ together and that what we're seeing is the depth of relationship of partnership in the gospel. It is a closeness that you can't know other ways. You just can't. You can try. Um, but when, when you have uh, something less than that you're trying to base friendship on, something weaker, something down here, Good luck trying to reach the heights of relationship when it's God that's the architect of humans and relationships and things like that. What you see here is these guys crying because they're not going to see each other again. They know what Paul's uh, about to do and everything like that, but they don't seem particularly concerned about his future safety. It's that they're close. And so they're sad because they know they're not going to see him again. Now, in the age in which we live, this kind of very electronic thing uh, that we live in now, this generation, um, I'm not saying that's all bad. I think there are parts of it that have made us closer, actually, but I do think there are parts of things that can, they can make, uh, allow us to substitute something that is uh, precious and uncommon for something that is far more ordinary. And one of those is the opportunity to serve together. If you were here on a Sunday morning starting about six when the first people roll up here and you watch the the way the banner the camaraderie the things that go on inside this building week after week after week year after year after year each of them enjoys and cares about serving together it's not just an individual thing to the point that if you find out that somebody's not on duty this week so to speak it kind of bums you out you miss them even though you know they'll be back whatever because there's a there's a certain depth that comes with, hey, we do something important together. We serve the Lord together. And it goes way beyond Sundays. It goes to serving the poor, caring for each other's families, praying together that, that sin would be forgiven by God and repentance and things like that. It's all of that. When somebody's feeling weak, right, or grieving, when one part hurts, every part of the body hurts. When the body, one part rejoices, everybody rejoices. That that's the way it's supposed to be in the kingdom of God. So we're watching a holy friendship kind of take root here and kind of show us its stuff right on the surface. You may remember when uh, Jesus is there in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's getting to the end. You remember what he does when his sweat becomes like blood and he's worried and he's in anguish? He goes to his disciples and he says, stay with me. Let's pray together. And they fall asleep. But even the Lord Jesus, in his hour of need, reaches out to his own followers. I think that is so powerful and such a vivid illustration of what you see here 
between Paul and the Ephesian elders. There is a camaraderie, but it's way more than that. Uh, a, uh, a closeness, but it's probably even more than that. It's, it's a unity that really only exists in the body of Christ. And we live in a world, folks, that will tell you to find your friendships and your meaning in every other possible category. Race, gender, sexual orientation, political affiliation, football team you follow, whatever, your favorite bands. Uh, everybody drinks wine, everybody drinks beer together, whatever. You can't build a relationship that lasts there. You can't. Because that's not how we're wired. That's not, nothing has the strength of the gospel, nothing. You see it in Paul, you see it in Jesus and his followers. So where that comes lacking, where that lacks, say, inside the church, is usually not, um, it doesn't mean that the, the, those kind of friendships don't exist in the church. It often means that there's a lack of discipleship going on between two people. You got one person actually following Jesus and you got another person uh, observing Jesus. But when two people are, three or four or a hundred or 200, 300, and they're all following Jesus together fully, that brings a closeness that you can't find elsewhere. You just can't. That's why it's a big deal, for instance, when somebody moves away from the church. You know, it's, it's sad. It's why people actually want to spend valuable time doing something, serving the Lord together, that doesn't seem to benefit them in any way, shape, or form. It builds unity and closeness. Because we realize that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. And that when one part of the body hurts, we all hurt. When somebody rejoices, we rejoice. I'm going to take you back. This is uh, June 30th, 2019, this picture. In here, in this room, some of you are in this picture. Uh, so you're oriented to it this way, that wall. So this is us doing our thing. You remember that? That's pre-COVID. Uh, we're, we're nomads at this point. We no longer own our building. We're, we're worshiping wherever we can figure out to do so. And we come in here, and we didn't just come in to look at it and go, ooh, cool. And there was some of that, but that's not why we came. Y'all remember what we're doing here? On the walls, we were writing. And we asked people, we want you to write one of three things. Write scripture. Write a prayer. Or write the name of somebody you want to see come to Jesus. And so there on the walls, people wrote their name. And they wrote some of their names. Now, I know for a fact that there were people whose names were written on that wall that became Christians since that happened. And the people who were there that day, some of you were, remember the feeling of unity that day. You see, serving the Lord and even just the act of committing, right? Just saying, you know what? Heck yeah, I'm in. Let me think about that. Let me, let's together pray for the people whose names are written on the wall. Let's reflect together on the scriptures that are written on the wall. Let's commit to praying for one another and for the city 
and for the mission of the church and all of those things. Let's do it, right? That holds you together in a way you can't get sipping margaritas in Palm Springs. You can't. It's too shallow. It's too shallow. Maybe fun. When I have a young would-be married couple come to me, hey, where'd you meet? We met in the club. Okay. I've actually known people that are happily married and have been for a long time, good Christian marriages that met in bars or whatever else. Um, and I keep asking them questions. What do you guys do for fun when you're by yourselves? We go to the club. Okay. Um, what else do you do? We go to wineries. Okay. And, and if you're not at a winery, what do you, I don't know, go to bars sometimes. Okay. I sense a theme to the marriage here, that's the, uh, the upcoming marriage here. What else? What else? What else? And what they, realize, what they don't see yet is that you can't, you can date over there, but having a lasting marriage over there is really hard to do. Strong marriages need strong foundations. And if that doesn't exist, then as Jesus will say in Matthew 7, the house is built, and when it faces the storm, it doesn't stand. It goes flop. So when, and I don't mean, by the way, you know, what he says in Matthew 7 is not you hear, you know what Jesus says. It's the one who hears what I say and does it. That's the wise one. That's who's building their house on stable land. Uh, my parents have been married 51 years. Her parents have been married. My wife's parents have been married 52. I think they got married a year before mine. Um, happily married, strong marriages, uh, and honor the Lord in, in every aspect. They're both aimed in the same direction. And if there are going to be times when you're feeling selfish, okay, or the other person's feeling selfish, and if you don't have something above you as Lord, if you don't have Jesus above you as Lord, then it becomes essentially... Um, America ninja warrior of ego and pride. It's just who can outdo the other one? Who can out-argue the person? Who can wear the other one down? Who can do those things? But if there's somebody governing the way you talk to each other, the way you treat each other, something that you're aimed at that's greater than even the pair of you together, now you might get somewhere. Same with parenting, by the way. You try to parent your kids through just sheer diplomacy, good luck. You try to do it through, um, you know, the, the, the human strength that mom and dad have between them. You don't have that much strength. There's not that much strength in existence. There has to be something stronger and deeper. And the good news is that God offers it to us freely in Jesus. But it's hard to see how serving would produce energy or strength or vitality or uh, a leathery spirit that can take the trials and the tribulations that come with it and how it could deepen friendships. So here they are, crying. You know, those who are, um, ser who serve in Christ and really do it deeply, tears are not uncommon. They're common. They're not always sad tears, they're happy tears, they're deep tears. Um, 
There are critics of the church that claim the churches are clicky and um, maybe porcelain on the outside, et cetera, et cetera, superficial, et cetera. But my experience has been most churches are not shallow. Some people are shallow. But usually the people who say that have never actually been into the church. They observe it. So they like commenting on the water from the side of the pool. They haven't jumped into the pool, so they don't know what the water is actually like. So it's easy to go, ooh, look at that water. Looks cold, looks dirty, looks whatever. But when you jump in, it's awesome. <laughs> and you go, I had no idea this was down here. This is unbelievable. This is amazing. I've told some of you before about a relationship I had with a fellow named Bill Toller. This was many years ago. Uh, he was a decorated pilot in World War II. I didn't know that at the time. When he and I met each other, we were at odds. Um, we were doing a construction project at the building, and we had to move a flagpole from one place to another, and he was not a fan, to put it mildly, and I was the new guy, and so I took a beating from that dude um, via uh, handwritten notes <laughs> and other things, uh, articulating his perspective on, on the issue. And uh, when we first got going, we were just like this all the time. Now, he was on oxygen. And so one of my vivid memories is of preaching with the purring of his oxygen machine kind of in the background as the soundtrack of the sermon. Well, we became friends over, over time. We kind of came to understand each other. I didn't know his background at the time, so that hence I didn't understand why he was, seemed to be overreacting to the flagpole and all that stuff. And he didn't understand what I was really trying to do and what I wasn't trying to do. But that came with time as we started serving together in ministry. And we became very, very close to the point that, you know, as is often the case, church members will give uh, preachers some really strange things as gifts. Um, you know, I, at Christmas time, I get some strange stuff from people. But Bill is different because he gave me something every week. He gave me a dollar bill and a piece of Werther's candy. And that was his way of saying, hey, I love you, you know. So I would just come down, and he'd already shown up early and put it, put it on my pew. So I would come down, there'd be a little Werther's and a dollar bill. That's how I knew Bill was in the house. And then you could hear his machine going. Um, the time came for Emily and I to move to California. And after everybody from, this was in Texas at the time, and uh, we came out to move to California after everybody had told us, oh, you don't want to move to California and raise your kids out there. Uh, and we decided to do that very thing. We, we decided that we needed to make a move. And, and so I was up giving the departure announcement. This is a Paul and Miletus kind of thing. I need, we're, we're called elsewhere, we're going to go. Bill Toller, oxygen just barely breathing at all. This dude cuts me off mid-announcement. Stands up to his feet, which I didn't even know he could do. He stands up, it was like he'd been miraculously healed or something, and he starts, he first says, we love you, Tim, and then he says, starts singing the old devotional song, we love you with the love of the Lord, and so the whole church kind of just starts singing it to, to M and I, and then he sits back down. We move to California. We're here maybe a year, I get a package in the mail from Dallas. And I open up this package, and inside there is a Werther's and a dollar bill for every Sunday I've been gone. 
I mean, is that not the most aw shucky thing you've ever heard? I mean, I was like, <laughs> and it was like Paul and, at Miletus. It was like, it was the most uh, kind uh, thing. And when you think about the journey of that relationship, think of it like the meme, how it started, how it's going, right? How it started was malice and rancor and beating each other up over things that probably didn't matter nearly as much as the gospel we learned to submit to as friends. And by the time that we ended up over here, um, in fact, his wife, Betty, just commented on something <laughs> between the services. You know, we're serving together. And two guys, uh, probably 30, I mean, I don't even know if I was 30, a 30 year old preacher or so, and a, and a guy that was going to be with the Lord within six months of that package arriving, you know, uh, had really become brothers. And so when pastors get together and they, they have their little, they feel united by the fact that they do the same thing, like soldiers when they're together in certain rooms, they just, they fought in the same war, they're part of the same branch of the military, you know, they're different versions of those kinds of things. But what Paul, what Paul does here, he talks about it elsewhere, but he shows us here is that there really is not a bond stronger than the bond of Jesus. It's the strongest stuff that exists. So we can try to find it elsewhere. We can invest the best of ourselves elsewhere if we choose to. But man, what we will miss. What we will miss <laughs> might be one of the great tragedies of our lifetime that we may not even know what we miss. But what I learned from him Paul and those elders on that day is that you know what it is more blessed to give than to receive and it's in the giving that you receive and it's in the serving together that you're bonded together so with that in mind I'd like us as a church to turn toward the Lord's table uh, we have the elements ready for you if you missed them coming in uh, you can go ahead and just put a little hand in the air like that and we'll bring you some with the bread and the cup. Think about today the fact that all over the globe today, um, <clears throat> everything from right now, our friends down in Luminous City in downtown San Diego that we help support, they're taking communion right about now. Um, people all over the globe, churches we've helped start in Central America, South America, Mexico, um, we're taking communion as a body we're bonded together by the blood of Jesus and so whenever we take the bread and the cup let's remember the one who said to us it is more blessed to give than to receive and let us rejoice with those who rejoice mourn with those who mourn and act like Jesus and how we treat one another embrace one another let's pray together Heavenly Father we ask that you, at this moment, that you join us together in Christian love and unity. With the basin and the towel, Father, with the cross before us, with the empty tomb guiding us, the Holy Spirit within us. Father, you guide us where you want us to go. Give us courage and strength friendship and partnership in the gospel. Help us
patient with one another. Help us to love one another. Help us to serve one another and go about the task that you put us on this earth to do, Father. For the body of Christ at large, Father, we give you thanks. For our sisters and brothers in this room, we give you thanks, Lord. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.